I didn't know I was doing the prayer this morning, so you got a shortened version, okay? You lucked out on that one, as they say. However, for the next 53 minutes and 27 seconds, you're all mine when it comes to the certain... No, I'm just kidding. It's not that long. 52 minutes. That's all. <laughs> We're going to start off this morning, I hope. There we go. There's a little British royalty quiz. Are you ready? Here we go. There she is, Queen Elizabeth II, Queen of England and the Commonwealth. Always got to throw that on the end. How many people here think that Queen Elizabeth pays income taxes? Raise your hand. Okay. How many say no, she does not pay income taxes? All right. How about this guy? Princess Charles, heir apparent to the throne, eventually, right? How many people think that Prince Charles pays income taxes? Okay, you're consistent, Andrew. I like that. I like that. How many people say they, that Prince Charles does not pay income taxes? Okay, well, if you said that they don't pay income taxes, you would have been right until 1993. Because according to legal and royal tradition, the Queen and Prince Charles did not pay income tax because the taxes were collected in the name of the sovereign, right, which in this case is Queen Elizabeth. And so the sovereign and, in this case, her family were exempt from paying taxes. But in 1992, both of these two folks here voluntarily agreed to give up their rights to pay income tax. And, of course, this was hailed as a noble gesture, right? The queen and the prince are, are, are identifying with the common person, and they're paying their fair share of the responsibilities. But the reality is, is that there was enormous pressure on the royal family to do this. I mean, England was in the middle of its worst recession that it had seen since the Great Depression, and one out of ten Brits were unemployed at the time. And, you know, people were becoming more and more resentful of the wealth and the extravagant lifestyle of the royal family. And to make matters worse, you know, during all this, there was this huge fire at Windsor Castle, which was going to cost millions and millions and millions of dollars to fix. And you guessed it, it was all going to come from the public coffers, right? So, in light of this heat from souring public opinion and the criticism of, of the politicians, the Queen voluntarily agreed to give up her right of being tax-exempt, although she still would not disclose the amount of her total worth, which could be anywhere from estimates from $1.5 to $10 billion. Now, what does this have to do with our sermon this morning? Well, our passage is from Matthew 17 this morning. 17, 24 through 27, if you'd like to turn there, or swipe there, whatever the case may be. And it's all about Jesus and his paying of the temple tax. And interestingly enough, Matthew is the only one of the Gospels who relays these events to us. And that shouldn't be surprising because, you know, if you remember, Matthew was a tax collector in a previous life, right? In fact, he was even a tax collector in the area in which this, um, this takes place. But again, it's another account of a sovereign, a king, who pays a tax when he's rightfully exempt, exempt from it. But in this case, Jesus really does pay it voluntarily. 
And he does so not with the understanding that his personal wealth will be kept a secret, but with the intention that the riches of his grace would be made known by doing it. So, before we jump in, I just want to say one thing. I want us to fight the temptation this morning to just walk away from this, this passage with the primary you know, good moral lesson that Christians should pay their taxes. Of course, Christians should pay their taxes. I'm not going to be talking about that uh, a whole lot today. But that's true, and it's an application. But what I want you to see is that there's a lot more going on here in this passage than just that truth of Christians need to submit to authorities and pay their taxes. So turn to your Bibles to Matthew 17, 24 through 27, and join me uh, as we read this together. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the half-shekel tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me, and for yourself. Let's pray. Father, I again thank you uh, for this privilege and responsibility of preaching from your word. And I pray that even now you would be equipping me to, fe- to pre- preach faithfully from your word and to not preach anything that would go against it in any way. I pray for our hearts, including my own, that it, you would soften them, to have your truth planted and also grow and bear fruit through what we look at in this passage this morning. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the first thing we're going to talk about is the king's submission. Okay? So they've returned to Capernaum after a long ministry trip, right? Because that's, you know, the home base for Jesus' ministry. It's also where Peter lives. And, you know, for tax purposes, Capernaum is technically their legal residence, Right? So they come back to Capernaum, and the tax collectors seem to waste little time in making sure that they uh, pay their tax, right? That's probably because they would hang out at the city gate where the, where the, toll, the toll booth was. So, but remember, now unlike Matthew, who collected taxes for the Romans, these tax collectors are collecting the temple tax, okay, the double drachma or half shekel tax, which was also known as the atonement tax. And the reason why it was known as the atonement tax is because its collection was rooted in Exodus 30. If you want to turn there with me, and we'll take a look at that as well. Exodus 30, verses 11 through 16, and we'll read it together. The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, Then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among you, among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered at the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel of 20 gerahs, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less. Than, than the half shekel, and you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. There it is, okay? 
You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. So that's what the atonement tax was based upon, okay? This is the two drachma, half a shekel atonement tax outlining God's law that every male, Jewish male over the age of 20, was, was to pay for atonement for their lives. And not just for those Jewish males living in Jerusalem, but all around where they were dispersed around the world. And originally you saw it was used for the upkeep of the temple, of the tabernacle, but eventually it was for the upkeep of the temple. So there's Peter. He's out and about, and tax collectors use that as an opportunity, right, to ask him about Jesus' payment of the temple tax. Now one question is, what's, the, what's their motive in asking this question? I mean, could it be that they expected Peter to say no. That's, that's a distinct possibility. I mean, I'm sure Jesus' reputation has preceded him to some degree, right? I mean, he's had several confrontations with the Jewish leaders. He's said some things that may imply that he's not very impressed with the temple. I mean, do you remember? He said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. He said, something greater than the temple is now here, referring to himself in chapter 12. So it's, it's, you know, it's possible that they were expecting to hear a no, but the Greek grammar of this question actually implies that they were looking to get a yes, to receive a yes answer. So it might be that their question was kind of more of a respectful reminder. You know, something like, you know, you, uh, you guys have been out of town for a while, and uh, it's the month of Adar already, and that means we've got to get this uh, tax money to Jerusalem in time for the Passover, so Jesus is getting ready to pay this thing, right? You know, something like that, kind of just bringing it up uh, to remembrance. Well, I mean, the first question I have is, why don't they just ask Jesus himself, right? And there are probably two reasons for that. The one is that Jesus is known as being a rabbi, right? And in that culture, it was considered to be disrespectful to ask a rabbi such a direct question like that. But another reason is that, you know, we, we read in the scriptures many times that they, when they're in Capernaum, they stay at Peter's house, okay? And another thing about that culture is that it's also seen as disrespectful to ask somebody's guest a direct question like that. So instead, they go to Peter, the host, and they ask him as far as whether Jesus is going to pay. And, and as the text tells us, Peter says, yes. You know, the teacher's going to pay the tax. Well, how does Peter know this? I mean, did they, has he seen him pay it before? Maybe they talked about it on the way to Capernaum. Um, maybe Peter's just loyally defending his friend's honor, right? Or... You know, we, we, we've all seen how Peter's not exactly the quickest person on his feet, right? Maybe, you know, in a fresher, awkward situation, he just kind of blurts out whatever he needs to to get them off his back. You know, whatever the case is, he, he assures them that, yes, Jesus is going to pay the tax. Now, we're going to talk about this exchange between Jesus and Peter in a little bit. But before we do that, I, I just want to make this point, and that is that Jesus does pay the temple tax, even though, as we'll see later, he rightfully could have claimed an exemption to it. Jesus willingly submits to God's law and pays the tax. You see, Jesus didn't come to thumb his nose at the law as he was often accused of doing, right? He came to perfectly obey and fulfill the law. So here's a question I just want to ask all of us, and that is, what is our posture towards submitting to God's commandments? You know, I, I'm going to say 
that every single one of us in this room, including myself, need to repent of thumbing our nose at God's commandments. Now, there's probably no one here who, who does that literally. But in our hearts, we all do it in various ways. You know, sometimes it, it takes the form of us picking and choosing which commandments we're kind of going to focus on, right, and kind of pushing the other ones aside. And it's usually the ones that we push aside are the ones we ignore because they touch on, you know, our sinful hearts and those areas that we need the most growth in, right? Or another way that we might thumb our nose that way is, you know, we rest in the commandments that we seem to have down pat, right? And then we turn around and we feed our own self-righteousness and our arrogance by criticizing those who don't, who are struggling to you know, follow the commandments in that particular area. And I think um, I can safely say this about both you and I, is that we all use the grace of God sometimes to excuse our sin, right? There, I mean, there's no hope for us apart from the righteousness of Christ that has be, become our own. But how often do we use that righteousness as this kind of insurance policy, right? You know, as a springboard for our own pursuit of unrighteousness. We all do that. You know, how often do we abuse God's promise of forgiveness in Christ by treating his grace like a familiar doormat, like right, wiping off our feet again and again, feet which we, we keep muddying through intentional, willful sins against God. We all do that. And I, the thing I want to communicate to us is that, beloved, the grace, the same grace that saves us is the same grace that sanctifies us and makes us more like Christ. The same Jesus who saves us is the same Jesus who says, be holy because I am holy. So I pray this morning that we would all repent of this kind of posture towards God's commandments. So we'd ask the Lord to give us hearts of hunger and thirst for his righteousness, that willingly desire to obey his commandments, that want to please our Heavenly Father. I pray that he would give us eyes to see the beauty of holiness and not see it as a burden. You know what I'm talking about there? I pray for minds that will remember that we are not our own, that we were bought with a price and a very costly price. You see, Jesus' fulfillment of the law and the gospel of grace does not exempt us from obedience and pursuing holiness. In fact, they free us to cultivate those things in our own hearts. So the king's submission is our example. But so also is the king's exemption, which is the next thing we're going to talk about. You know, Jesus pays the temple tax, but before he does, he claims to be exempt from paying it. And there are several acceptable reasons why he could have claimed, appealed to. Rabbis traditionally were not uh, required to pay the, tax, the temple tax. Now, Jesus is not an official rabbi, right? He hasn't been ordained by the powers that be. But, um, you know, because of his authoritative teaching, the people see him as a rabbi. And that's one reason he could have invoked, right? Another reason is that traditionally people living off charity were not required to pay the temple tax. And this certainly describes the lifestyle of Jesus, the traveling preacher, doesn't it? But the interesting thing is that Jesus doesn't invoke either of these two reasons for claiming an exemption. His claim is rooted in relationship. 
know, story, story tells us that Peter comes back into the house and divinely knowing the conversation that he's had with the tax collector, Jesus, never one to pass up an opportunity to teach, right? Ask Peter a question before he can say anything or do anything. And he says, Jesus, in the text, in verse 25, he says, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? And, you know, Peter probably thought that was kind of a duh question, right? And he answers, from others. Kings don't tax, them, tax themselves, right? And Jesus confirms his response and says, Then the sons are free. But, in order not to offend the tax collector, Peter, pay the tax. This is what you need to do and pay the tax. Now, did you catch that? Did you catch what just happened there? Because Jesus claims that he's exempt from paying the temple tax because he's the king's son. But who's the king of the temple? Well, God himself is the king of the temple. So what we have here is a clear instance of Jesus claiming to be the son of God, right? Now this shouldn't, be, shouldn't have been a shock to Peter, and it shouldn't be a shock to us at this point, because we've already seen, you know, on two occasions where God the Father has already confirmed this, right? Remember at Jesus' baptism, he's uh, being baptized, and God the Father's voice from heaven comes down and says, this is my son, in whom I am well pleased. And then just a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the transfiguration. And, and God the Father again said from heaven, this is my son in whom I am pleased. Listen to him, right? See, but claiming to be the son of God was more than just a claim to sonship. It was a claim to divinity, to being God. I mean, the prophets had already spoken about this. They already said that the Messiah, the one who would save the people from their sins, you know, the prince of David who would come. He would be the son of God, but he would also be divine. And Jesus himself asserts his own divinity on, on many occasions. He does it when he, he demonstrates it when he, you know, says that he has the authority to forgive sins. Who else but God can forgive sins? They were right to ask that question when he stated that. Jesus makes that assertion when he claims to be eternal. Do you remember what he says in, in John? He says, before Abraham was... I am. No doubt what he was claiming at that point. And the apostles also had no doubts. And they embraced Jesus' claim to divinity. For example, Paul in Colossians 1, 15-19 says, speaking about Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now listen to this, okay? For by Him all things were created. But God created the world. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. He's eternal. And in him all things hold together, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then the writer of Hebrews says this, in chapter 1, he says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint 
of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Those things cannot be said of anyone else other than God. So Jesus' claim for exemption and paying a temple tax is not just based on sonship, but on his identity of being the divine second person of the Trinity, the Son in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in light of this, what earthly king has the right to demand the king of kings and lord of lords to pay taxes, right? I mean, what, what temple tax collector needs to collect an atonement tax from Jesus, the Son of God, right? The, the sinless great high priest. I mean, isn't Jesus right in going and rebuking these tax collectors, right? He goes to them and he says, have I paid the tax? Are you kidding me? I should be making sure you've paid the tax, tax collectors. I mean, don't you know who I am? Atonement tax. Please, you should be on your knees thanking me for the atonement I'm going to be making soon, right? Well, of course, that's not what he says. That's probably what I would have said, but that's not what Jesus said. Jesus' response is, Peter, let's not offend them. Go pay the tax. You see, Jesus lays down his divine rights and pays the tax. He chooses to not, to, to un, not unnecessarily offend them for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom. And you know, we have royal rights and privileges and freedoms too. Notice that Jesus in the text says, then the sons are free. Not just son, referring to himself as the sons. And, you know, remember that he also pays the tax on Peter's behalf. And this is a clear implication that Peter, though not exactly in the same way, is also a son of the king and exempt. And by implication, we too are sons and daughters of the king. You see, Jesus possesses his supreme rights by nature of his relationship to the Father, Peter, and we have them by nature of our relationship with the Son, Jesus. But here, again, is, is a question of application. Like Jesus, are you willing to lay down your rights and freedoms and privileges for the sake of of the gospel. Will you be willing to lay them down if doing so will advance the gospel in someone else's life? I mean, here's just some um, things I'll throw out to think about, you know? You know, maybe you carpool with a bunch of folks to work during the week, and maybe some of them are not believers in Christ. And when you drive, you like to play Christian music on your radio, right? It's your car, you're driving, it's your right to play it. And maybe that music really offends one of them. Is that a possible situation of laying down your rights for the advancement of the kingdom? Or maybe it's a matter of laying down your, your rights to your own time. And maybe taking the time to coach your son's baseball team. Or maybe be involved with your daughter's Girl Scout troop where you're going to be meeting people who aren't Christians and developing relationships with them and that type of thing. You know, Are you willing to lay down your freedoms and your rights for your Christian brothers and sisters. You know, maybe skip drinking that beer in front of a couple that you know may be a weaker sister or brother and might be offended, even though you have the right to do it under the gospel. You know, maybe it's giving up your, your right to not be inconvenienced when a sister or a brother needs help for you to serve them in some way. 
you know, are you willing to lay down your rights for the advancement of the gospel in your spouse's life? Are you willing to give up your, your right to me time or your right to always be right? Not that I would know anything about those things. You know, please don't hear me this morning adding more Christian rules for you to follow. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to give you some practical, potential examples to get you thinking. My hope is that we'll all wrestle with with the question of whether we care more about our rights or whether we're about the souls and hearts of others. How you apply that, I'm going to leave between you and the Lord. Laying down our rights is difficult, it's humbling, and sometimes it is very costly. But we can be free knowing that our Heavenly Father loves us and knows what we need and that he'll provide exactly what we need. And that's kind of the transition to my next point, and that is let's talk about the King's provision. Okay? See, there's a little problem with Jesus' decision to pay the temple tax here. Because the temple tax, as we've said before, is, is half a shekel, which is equivalent to a couple of days' wages. And these guys don't have any money, okay? I mean, Jesus is a rabbi with a ragtag bunch of disciples living off of charity. And the question is, so how is he going to pay this? Okay, that's great. You want to pay the tax, Jesus. But where exactly is the money going to come from, right? And this sets the stage for some very interesting instructions. I mean, Jesus tells Peter, you know, go out. You know, Peter, who's used to fishing with nets. Remember, Peter's a fisherman. But Jesus says, take a hook, go to the sea, and fish, okay? And the first fish, the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you'll find the half shekel in its mouth. And use that coin to pay my tax and yours, he says. And the question is, you know, did Peter really do this? Because this is a very unique passage in the sense that we have this miracle that we don't actually see take place in the text, right? He just gives the instructions and it's kind of left there. And so you're left wondering, okay, what happens next? Well, I'm just going to say there's no reason for us to think that this miracle didn't happen. Matthew doesn't give us any reason to think. In fact, his specific detail about Jesus' instructions and what to do implies, gives every indication that Peter did exactly what Jesus told him to do, and that what Jesus told him to do actually, and said would happen, actually happened, okay? So we're safe to say that this miracle occurred, that Peter went out, he got the coin, and he paid the tax. But let's just stop and think about this miracle for a minute, okay? Because we might just be tempted to smile and kind of shake our heads and be like, oh, that Jesus, you know, there he goes again. Kills me with these miracles, right? But don't miss the fact that this miracle is another assertion of Jesus' divinity. Now, why? Well, you realize everything that had to take place for this, for this miracle to happen? I mean, first, someone had to drop you know, a shekel into the sea, okay? Then 
a fish had to grab it before it hit the bottom. Then, after who knows how much time has passed after the first two things, Peter has to put his hook in the exact place where that fish is going to be. And then that specific fish would have to take Peter's hook. And if you're a fisherman, this is probably the most impressive part of it. You know, once the fish was on the hook, it would need to stay on the hook while Peter reeled it in, right? And that would be the fish that had the coin to pay their tax, the exact amount. Well, who else but the sovereign God of the universe could have possibly pulled this off? And you realize, in light of those passages we just looked at, right in Colossians and Hebrews, Jesus is the one through whom and for whom and by whom the world was created. He's the one that separated the waters and made the seas. He's the one who created the fish to swim in those seas. He's the sovereign king who has already demonstrated his power over that creation by calming the storms that have tossed those seas. He is the God who ordains whatever whatsoever comes to pass. So in light of Jesus' provision here, in his paying the temple tax, it leads us to another application this morning, and that is, is that we can trust in the providence of God to make provision for us, too. Now, I'm not suggesting this morning, okay, that if you're a little short on your light bill this month, that you go and grab your tackle box after the service and head to Lake Fairfax, okay? I'm not saying that. But what the text highlights is the simple fact that nothing happens by random chance, okay? Nothing happens which God doesn't see, know about, and some way ordain. Now, in light of that, you know, what is it you need the Lord to provide this morning? Is it this month's rent? Is it encouragement in the midst of the loss of a loved one? Is it is it some difficult family situation? Is it the grace uh, to overcome a habitual enslaving sin? What is it that you need provision for? Because whatever it is that you need divine provision for, I'm going to encourage us to remember these things. The first one is we are valuable to our Heavenly Father. Matthew says in Matthew 10, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered, which is a little easier for him than for others, right? For some of us than others. <clears throat> Fear not, therefore, and here's the point, you are of more value than many sparrows. You are valuable to your Heavenly Father. Okay? Second thing is, not only are you valuable, but your Heavenly Father is willing to help us because he cares about us. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. The God of the universe cares for you. The thing is, though, is he's not only willing, but our Heavenly Father is also sovereignly able to provide for us. Isaiah 46, Isaiah says, God says this in Isaiah, he says, To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me, that we may be alike? 
Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. He's willing and he's able and he loves us and he cares for us and that's why we can know that no matter what comes down the pike, that our Heavenly Father is always working everything for our good. You've probably seen this verse so many times, Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. And if you are in Christ Jesus this morning, and you have been called according to His purpose, and that verse can be claimed by you and believed and trusted. But besides all these things, the Son, Jesus, knows what we're going through. And he's also interceding for us. Hebrews 2 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, referring to his taking on a body of flesh, right? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, that is to turn away God's wrath, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are also suffering. And also in Hebrews 4, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Looking for a prayer partner? How about Romans 8? Christ Jesus is the only one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. That's why we can take comfort in God's unfailing providence and provision for us. And we know that whatever situation we're facing, whatever sacrifices we may be called to make, whatever resources that we may need, that our Heavenly Father is willing and able to help us, that He loves us, that He cares about us, and He has not turned a blind eye or a deaf ear to our cries. And that His Son understands what we're going through and is interceding at that same throne for us. And as Roman 8 tells us also that his spirit offers groanings on our behalf, groanings too deep for words, even when we don't know how to pray ourselves. So we know that even when we don't get what we ask for, or that maybe when the provision doesn't seem to be coming as fast as not, fast enough as we'd like it to. And that even though we may not be able to see it, that our Heavenly Father, our loving Father, is weaving all of these things for our good. I had a real live example this morning of um, the Father's posture towards us as his sons and daughters. You know, Bella has this thing lately where she wakes up in the middle of the night and will just be crying and yelling something like, cover me, 
my blankie is stuck. Because somehow she's rolled out from you know underneath her blanket and she can't figure out how to get it over herself. And at first, Christine and I would, you know, run into her room, we'd comfort her, and we'd, you know, cover her back up, you know, with her ladybug blanket. And, you know, I have a little thing I do, or where are those feet? Because I'm tucking you under her feet, you know. But after a while we realized that um, that probably wasn't the best thing for her, that she kind of needed to wrestle with it and figure it out on herself, on her own, right? So we made the decision to not go in the room when she did that. And let me tell you, <laughs> when you, uh, you know, when you hear one of your children crying, I mean, the first thing you want to do is go in there and comfort them and fix it, right? So that was really, really hard to hear her crying like that and to not go in there. And there are sometimes I was even outside the door listening, right, with my ear to the door, wavering, saying, okay, should I go in? No, no, don't go in. I'm just wavering, right, because my heart was just, I mean, it was just so, uh, so touched by that. Well, long story short, you know, I, I got up at some, some hour that no human being should be up in the morning, and I kind of, I was reading, and I fell asleep on the, you know, on the, on the couch downstairs, and I snapped to attention because I heard Bella crying around 5, 5.30 this morning, and that's what I hear. Cover me, my binky, my blankie's stuck, okay? I'm like, okay, not going to go up there. She'll figure it out. And then she pulled out the big guns. Daddy! <laughs> Daddy, come help me! Oh. <laughs> I want to be the hero, right? want to be the hero. My daughter, she's crying. But I knew, again, the best thing for me to do is just to sit there and let her tough it out. And sure enough, after probably 10 seconds, she was back asleep, right? But why am, I, why am I telling you that story? Because that is the Father's posture towards us. And I want you to remember that image of, of, uh, of Bella. And remember that I wasn't deaf to her cries for help. And my heart was hurting because she, what she was going through. But I knew in this particular situation that the best thing for me to do is to just stay downstairs and not intervene in that time. Now, if that's, if that's me, okay, if that's me, you know, a, a, a fallen sinner, okay, how much more so your Heavenly Father does he listen when you cry out? Is his judgment best when he chooses whether to intervene or not? How much more does he care about your good and what he's accomplishing in your life? That's the, that's the posture of your Father loves us and he cares for us and even when we think he's so far away he's right there with his ear to the door listening so I want you to walk away with that and remember that the next time that you're in a situation where you don't know where God is and why he hasn't answered you well let's, let's wrap this thing up and, and uh, this, if you're going to groan during my sermon this is the time to do it okay Let's get down to the brass tacks of this passage, okay? Thank you. <laughs> I couldn't resist. I'm sorry. I know it's cheesy, but so be it. How are we to apply the things that we've talked about in this passage? Where do we find the grace that we need, for example, the grace that we need for motivation and the power to pursue holiness and obey God's commandments? Where do we find the grace that we need you know, to have the willingness to lay down our rights for the sake of ministering to others. Where do we find the grace that we need to have the faith to trust 
in God's provision and his providence in, in providing for all our needs. And it's, it's that simple Sunday school answer that's always right. In Jesus. In Jesus. See, we see this in the king's submission. Right? Jesus willingly being born under the law and perfectly fulfilling the law so that we, on our behalf, so that we could become sons and daughters. We see this in the king's exemption. Jesus ultimately laying down his divine rights to some extent as the second person of the Trinity. I mean, he, he left the glory and his rights of heaven behind. He veiled his glory in a body of flesh. He subjected himself, God subjected himself to the frailties and the struggles and the burdens and the trials of this life. And then he humbly allowed himself to be nailed to and murdered on a cross. And he was under no obligation to do this. He was rightfully exempt from coming to our rescue. He could have let us all perish in our sins. But he laid down his rights. And we see it in the king's provision. Remember, the temple tax is called the atonement tax. And remember, too, that you know, Jesus pays the temple tax even though he's exempt from it, but he also pays the, temp the atonement tax on behalf of Peter. And, and this is a wonderful reflection of the ultimate provision that Jesus has made for us when we are in Christ. For Jesus was sinless, yet he became sin on our behalf and his perfect righteousness has become our own. Jesus, who is owed all glory, all honor, all power, all wealth, this one who is owed all those things, willingly paid and received the wrath and punishment that we deserve. So I'm going to leave you with this this morning. I hope. Come on. There we go. Okay. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Beloved, we have been graciously given all things in Jesus Christ. The grace and everything else we need is found in Jesus and as rightful daughters and sons of the King of the Temple. Let us run and rest upon our Jesus Christ, the King's Son, for it all. Please pray with me. Father, I'm just, uh, this always happens. I'm always struck with how much I need to hear the very things that are coming out of my mouth. I pray for us. I pray that these truths would change us today. 
I pray that we would be overcome by Jesus and who he claimed he was and who he is and what he has done. And I pray that we would not be the same people as we walk out of here. Father, I pray that you would teach us, number one, to believe that it is by grace that we have been saved and to stop trying to huff and puff and to please you and to earn our way in, even though we know in our heads what our theology should be. I pray that we would live as sons and daughters and not as orphans. And I pray that we would learn to depend upon your grace in, in new ways on deeper levels. And Father, I pray that you would forgive us for all those, all those ways that we thumb our nose at your commandments. I just, I, I just pray, I pray for hearts that would be captivated by the beauty of holiness and would long to have our lives reflected. There's only one way that can happen, and that is through your Holy Spirit working in our hearts. And I pray for that. I pray. I pray for the power of the Spirit to change us. And I pray these things, knowing that this prayer is heard because the resurrection of your Son proves that he is heard, and that's who I'm resting in right now in this prayer. And we pray all these things in his name, the one who shed his blood for us, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.